Genesis chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 20, but we're going to primarily be looking at verses 9 through 17. I'm just using verse 20 to kind of help us see the flow that takes place here. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word and the preaching of his word. Lord, we come before you now. We thank you, Lord, that you are delighted to use crooked sticks to draw a straight line. We ask, Lord, that this morning that you would bless the reading of your word, that it would be helpful and effectual in the lives of your people. We ask, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of, the, of your word, that Christ would attend to his people and speak to this people here this day. Lord, we ask that you would use all these things for your glory and for your praise. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and, every, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, and that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it from man. From the, his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Making sense of this beautiful mess. I want you to think about life. It's a beautiful mess. There are things as we look at this world around us that are beautiful beyond all measure. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Sunsets in Tucson are some of the prettiest I've seen. And in Arizona in particular, I, I, it's just amazing. For those of you that have been able to be in Sedona or in the Grand Canyon and watch the sun set and the sun rise, it's just unbelievable. The colors, the, the variations, it's just magnificent. 
There happens to be some clouds in the sky seeing those various shades of purple and pink that pervade the sky. It's phenomenal. When you're a parent and you get to watch a little child growing up and they make you laugh and they do amazing things, there's just incredible joy and happiness. My son's playing flag football right now and one of the, I'm coaching his team and one of the great joys I get to do is to watch he and his friends as, as they begin to get better and better, catching passes, running routes, blocking, doing all those things they do. It's just exciting. You just, that's my boy. He caught that pass. He got a first down. He scored a touchdown. Whatever the things are, it's this great, there's great beauty. There's great joy in life. Getting a good day's work done. But none of us are fooled completely by that. Because there's a big mess. Unfortunately, I can't say that my children always bring me joy. That I'm always thrilled with the things and the choices they make. Unfortunately, sometimes the same skies that can provide such beauty and wonder also can bring the clouds of hurricanes and storms. As we've seen hit various parts of the Gulf Coast and the eastern seaboard of our nation. The reality is, is that while we know that things are beautiful, we also know that they're messed up. And in this section of Scripture, what we see as Noah leaves the ark, he enters into a renewed creation, and we hear that language in 9.1 of Go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we think, Genesis chapter 1, yes, beautiful, Eden, glorious. But it's not Eden. It's not free of sin. It's not free of problems. And so we have this sense, rightly so, of longing for something more. And it's the beauty it's the beauty and the mess that we're living in that makes us long for it. The beauty makes us long for it. We go, that tastes great. There must be something better. And the problems and the difficulties and the tragedies and the hurts and the pains remind us that somehow if we can conceive of something better than this, we must have been made for something better than this. And indeed, we're right. And as we begin to look at this passage and unpack it, I want us to begin to think about the fact that what God is doing here is giving us a display of how people live in a renewed understanding of the world with all its imperfections, including the imperfections that remain in us. How do we live within that? Sphere. How do we struggle in the midst of that? How do we press on? As we begin to look at this then, I want us to look at three different points. The first one is the purpose the Lord restores. The second one is the problem the Lord reveals. And the third one is the promise the Lord remembers. And I want us to look at those three points as we unpack this passage and hopefully begin to be able to make some sense of the beautiful mess. The first thing I want you to notice is that when we look at that first section 20 through 22, what I want you to understand is going on there. After Noah 
makes these sacrifices, we then enter the realm of heaven. There's something kind of like the book of Revelation here, you know, where you're always going from planet earth to heaven to planet earth to heaven and seeing things from the earthly perspective and then from the heavenly perspective. And here what we have is we see the earthly perspective of Noah gets off that boat and literally says, thank the Lord, we're off the boat, the water is gone, praise God, and he offers these sacrifices. Whole burnt offerings. But then we see what happens in the heavens. And this whole conversation we see of what God says there in verses 21 and 22, what God's dialogue is actually within the Trinity. Noah doesn't know that God has said these things. We do because Moses wrote these things down for us, but Noah didn't. These were in the, this was in the mind of God. You have an insight into what God was thinking. The other interesting thing in my studies that I've, I've come across, and it's just something, I don't want to make a big point about it, but I want you to think about this. Many commentators believe that, when it's, that the way our translation says that God smelled the soothing aroma, actually believe that what's being said here is that rather that when that offering went up to heaven, God put off a soothing aroma. That it's not so much what God smelled coming from Noah, but rather what God gave off because man was doing what he was made to do. That is to give glory to God. Man is doing what he was made to do. And in fact, that's what we see happening here in the rest of this chapter, at least in the first part of it. What we see here is God once again reminding Noah and his sons, I made you for a purpose. I'm restoring to you that purpose. I've destroyed the earth and cleansed it. Now get back to what you're supposed to do. And what is that? Human beings were made to worship. That's what they were made for. And we all know it. Everybody worships something. That great theologian Bob Dylan, right? He wrote the song, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. We all know it. We all know we were made to do something. I have conversations in my home. I don't know how they are with you. I have them with myself internally, and I have them with my, with my kids. And here's what that conversation sort of goes like. Who's king of your life? Who's really the king? You see, because when you go to school and this kid constantly harasses you and calls you names and all of your actions are constantly focused on what that kid says about you and that kid's estimation of you and how that kid views you or thinks about you, guess, what, guess, what that, guess who rules you? Guess who the king is? That kid. That kid's the king. When you go to work and your boss is writing your case and you constantly let your whole worldview be encapsulated by your boss, who's the king? Your boss. You see, at some point, we all have this sensibility in ourselves which tends to get away from what we were made for, that is to worship God, and to put our affections, or at least to put our concerns towards that object on planet Earth which is not God. Whether it's career, power, money, sex, you name it. What's driving you 
is what rules you. That is the king. And see, what we see happening here in this, in this passage is that God is returning Noah and saying, Noah, I'm the king. Here's what I'm telling you to do. Fill the earth with you and critters. Because when you do that, my glory is seen. All of it. Now, this kind of gives us some interesting things to think about. One of the things is throughout this whole passage, you notice how there's this description of both human beings and animals, and we're kind of being linked into the same group of people. Not that we have the same identical reality, because we know that humans, there is that distinction here, but there's also this link of God saying, my glory is being shown. The purpose of your creation is to fill the earth to spill out all over the place so that the whole earth is filled with my glory. And God tells us that critters matter. Now for some of you, that should be a good sign that, you know, Fido and, and Fluffy and whatever other critters may inhabit your, your domicile actually matter to God. I don't know if there's a doggy heaven, won't speculate that far, but I can at least say as long as Fido lives and breathes on planet earth, that creature is significant to God. We don't just see it here. One of my favorite passages to prove this is to go to the end of the book of Jonah where God says that there were hundreds of thousands of people in Nineveh he didn't destroy and many cattle. Now, you know, our normal logic, we get the part of you spared it because of the, the many people, but the many cattle? Yes. God cares about moo cows. That's amazing. He cares. Those things actually display His glory in profound ways. Seeing a cow chewing its cud in the field has the ability to show the glory of God. And we, as those who have cognitive rational ability, are to be able to see that, and that is to cause us to praise God for His great and marvelous wonder. Now, I don't have time to go all back into this. We've talked this before from creation. But this also has a cultural mandate, an understanding of science and all the different things that we do as people. All of this is supposed to be seen again. What God is saying to Noah is get busy making this place a glorious testimony to my goodness. And one of the ways we see this is the fact that when we get to the middle of this passage we see God once again begin to talk about His image. His little idol, if you will, His selim that He made back in the garden was Adam and Eve. When you look at human beings, you should see God. You shouldn't say to yourself, wow, John's the greatest person I've ever met. When you meet John, what you should say is, wow, God is incredible. That doesn't mean that John's personality ceases to be important. It's rather, you see the greatness of John's personality because it's doing what it was made to do. And that is to glorify and worship God, to be fulfilling in all of life, to operate in freedom and not fear, to walk with assurance and not cowardice. That's what human beings were made for, to walk in the garden with God. And we see God speaking to Noah and once again saying, I'm right here with you. 
I'm right here with you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to continue to perpetuate all these things so that you can fill the earth, which then gives us an understanding of why we need seasons and why we need calendars and why we need morning and evening and all those things is because that's how human beings and animals operate. So the stability that God promises now seen in his command to go out and fill the earth. What I also want us to see here then is the fact that God is desirous of there to be great joy fully experienced here. That as more and more people are created, the opportunities to build families, to know that joy, to build communities, to know that joy, to see all these things developed there is great joy in that. There is great promise in that. There is an incredible feeling in all of you who have done a hard day's work. Some of us work in jobs that we almost never see the end. Ministry is one of those jobs. I can just tell you as a pastor, my day is never done. Mothers understand this. There's, there's never, when does a mother's job stop? Um, never. There are some occupations we, we do that there just never seems to be in, but others of us have the great fortune of being in jobs where there's a project. And you basically create the, the idea of the project, you put it onto a computer, you see the developments of it, and then you actually put it into production, and when the production's end, you come out the other end, and there it is, the little widget. Or whatever it is. Or when I did landscaping, one of the great things about getting done with a job of landscaping is when you went home, you went, yes, job well done. Before picture, after picture. I think that's why some of these, you know, these home shows and all these different kind of shows that have that, you know, before and after kind of thing are so popular these days is we have a sense of that there's something about us that enjoys that beginning and end. There's some finality. There's some finish to it. And I can see that. There's something good and honorable about that. And we sense it. There's also a desire to see good, the goodness of the Lord firmly established. Now this all sounds good. And, and maybe some of you are saying, that's incredible. Let's just pray, say amen, take the Lord's Supper and go home. The problem is there's more to be said in this passage. And what needs to be said in this passage is, is that the Lord is addressing a problem. He reveals that problem. But here's the problem. For all this beauty and wonder and glory that human beings are and are made for, what the Lord addresses here as well is this devaluing of life. Now many people go to this passage and they immediately jump on this passage about the devaluing of human life. And it's clearly there. And please don't hear me in any way, shape, or form minimizing that. But what we need to see that's happening in this passage is a value of life in all its forms. Life. What we see the problem is is that human beings don't value life. I want you to think about what Jesus says. I came to give them life and that abundantly. It tells us in Genesis 1 that God breathed into Adam the breath of life. What is this telling us about God? God is a God who is all about life. Now many of us have our pet life thing. 
You know, we see it in our culture. For many Christians, the issue of the unborn has become a very critical issue, and it should be. We should care about life. But I've also heard come out of the same people's mouths who are all about pro-life an indifference towards the creation. And that's unacceptable. Now, I want to tell you that I think some of these organizations out there that are animal rights activists and that are planet activists, some of them are extreme to the point of just what in the world is going on? But how often do we really give thought to those things? To the care of this world? To the care of human beings? See, that's part of what it means to be caretakers, which is what God made Adam and Eve, to tend and care to the garden and to spread His glory throughout it. In other words, there's a way that human beings are supposed to inhabit planet Earth that both benefits the created order and benefits themselves. And those things in God's mind were not at odds. The problem is with sin is it puts all these things at odds. And we see it in this passage, don't we? From now on, animals are for food for you, but they will be afraid of you. No longer will they yield to your commands without being trained and enculturated to do so, which is what we mean when we say we domesticate an animal. The reality is, is that the natural expectation of animals when they come close to human beings is to run. And that's what we see here, which is very unlike the garden where God brings all the animals to Adam and He names them. And what He named them was according to exactly the way they were. That's been lost. See, we have to begin to come to understand that there are things that we have to strive for. We have to be, as I said last week, we have to be people who are willing to strive to be rolling back the effects of sin, recognizing that we will never fully realize that in this life. But we need to try. Another thing that people tend to jump on and say, well, here's the problem. The problem here is, what we need to talk about here is capital punishment. That's what this passage is really getting at. And I want to contend with you, that is not what this passage is getting at. You may could use this passage, but you'd need others to make a fully-fledged argument that capital punishment is something we ought to do. But I want to challenge you in this way. How many of us execute one another in our hearts. Jesus says when you look at another person and say you fool, you've murdered them in your heart. How many of us perpetuate murder? How many of us hate other human beings? How many of us abuse other human beings by our speech, by how we speak or how we don't speak for those of you who love to give the silent treatment? See, we were made for intimacy, but we often don't do the things necessary to perpetuate it. That's a problem. And see, what really is going on in this passage is a discussion of the fact that human beings devalue life in some way. Which I'll just take a side note and say, maybe ought to give us compassion for people who don't necessarily agree with us on certain key issues which we think are obvious and that we hold near and dear. 
Sometimes these truths aren't self-evident to people because of sin. And we need to be people who are willing to recognize that, that this is a huge problem and a problem that no amount of legislation and no amount of activity is going to completely eradicate. It's just the truth. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying. I've told you, and I'm going to say it again, we should be striving with all our hearts to roll back the effects of sin where God gives us ability to do it. But we need to also be people who are not standing in judgment as if somehow we're not guilty of devaluing life ourselves in a variety of ways. Here's some things I want you to think about. Wanting mercy, we are people who want mercy but are not knowing how to get it or give it. We have people all around us that don't know how to give mercy because they don't know how to get mercy. Desiring to be glorified but not knowing how that is to be achieved, so becoming consumed with pursuing our own glory. And every single person in here is a glory stealer. Don't kid yourself. We all struggle with these areas. Longing for the truth, but always being caught up in the lie. Constantly what Scripture is always doing to us is saying, you believe the lie. You believe the lie from the very beginning. You believe the lie. And so we're always coming back to God's Word to find out how to make sense of the reality we're living in. Because we're often being affected by the lie. And isn't the whole point of a lie when you're being affected by it that you don't know it? You see what I'm saying to us? We have to recognize that all of us at some point are being deceived. The, the key is to not be deceived that in some area of your life you're deceived. And to begin to see it and pray what we prayed in Psalm 139. Lord, search me out and know me. Reveal to me the things that are in my heart that are displeasing to you. We see this wrong-mindedness in the view of life extends into the rest of creation, especially with animals. Human beings have the, have the ability to be incredibly perverse and cruel to other creatures. You've all heard the old joke, right? You know, the boss yells at, 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 the, at the worker. The worker goes home and yells at his wife. His wife goes upstairs and yells at the kids. The kids go downstairs in the backyard and kick the dog. We, we all, we've all heard that kind, of, that kind of thought process, and yet there's a real reality to that. The thing I want us to understand is that there's something to the notion that people who are able to do cruelty to children and animals display in us the ability to do cruelty to anything and everything. And we need to be sobered by this, men and women. We need to be thoughtful about it. It needs to begin to permeate our minds because what this text is trying to get us to see is that God cares deeply and profoundly about His world and about His image bearers. None of it is to be careless about or careless with. God cares about the whole. 
Now, lest we become so much that we start to say, well, it's, everything's equal, clearly God in this passage begins to single out human beings, right? In 5, we see there in verse 5 what God says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require and from man. From, this, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Now, he does not say the reverse of that. He says if an animal kills a human being, that animal's life is forfeit or can be forfeit. And he says in this passage that he will hold accountable a person who kills another person. But lest we're so quick to immediately jump and say capital punishment is mandatory, need we not remember Genesis chapter 4? What did God do with Cain, the murderer of his brother? The first murderer. He spared him. He showed him mercy. David the great adulterer and murderer. What did God do with him? He spared him and showed him mercy. So while we clearly need to understand that it is no small matter to kill a person, that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the, the next reaction is to go whack their heads off because they whack somebody else's head off. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's no room for a discussion of those issues. I'm only saying that we ought to be people who give great thought and care when it comes to the matter of ending life. That matters deeply and profoundly to God. Life. Life. By sin, death entered the world. God is concerned with life. And in that whole vein of discussing the value of human beings, many of you have heard this from The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis, but I wanted to read it to us again because it's so profound and helps to really think, I think, about what's being said here. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And there is life, and, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of the kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. Think about that. Taking each other seriously, valued one another. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinners. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, so he's making a distinction, he's saying every human being is holy and you ought not be trashing about with them. Every human being has value. But if he happens to be a Christian or she happens to be a Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way as the sacrament itself, for in him also Christ verlatiat, or latitat, the glorifier and the glorified glory himself is truly hidden. And you can think about this when, what, with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right? 
when we look around at the body, it's like looking at the loaf. The whole of us matters. When we're taught in, in the New Testament about the reality that, you know, whether it's thumbs or index fingers or eyes or nose, whatever part of the body somebody happens to be, that part is valuable. It has a place. It is not to be despised or discarded as unimportant. It can't see itself as unimportant and others can't see it as unimportant. It's a both and. See, that's the way we devalue life in ourselves as we say, well, I'm not really needed. I'm not really important. That's a lie. We need people. Now, the third thing I want us to look at then is this promise that God makes. He, he makes this promise. He's already said He's not going to destroy the world again. We already see what He said, this profound reality. that He knows human beings are flawed. He knows their evil and their character but he's not ever going to destroy them again with the flood. And now he takes that promise and says, I'm going to attach to that promise a covenant, and that covenant has a sign. And if you're not very familiar with the Old Testament, you ought to get used to this. Not so used to it that you think this happens all the time, but used enough to it that you start looking for it again, because it happens again. Here's a promise, here's a covenant made, and here's a sign given that that covenant and that promise are true. The promise is God's word. The covenant is his bond. The sign is the reality seen by us and sealed to us. That's what we see in this passage. And what I want us to begin to look at then as we look at the promise the Lord remembers is this. This passage, when we get to this point, brings about to us a great confidence. That's what it's supposed to do. At the end of the day, we're supposed to say, here's this incredible mandate to go out and do these things. There's a huge problem. How in the world can we live in this world? And now what Moses writes under the Holy Spirit's guidance to people is that God has given a promise, a covenant, and a sign so that we might press forward in the midst of the struggle to see the realities that we're called to lived out. This promise then that we see here has several parts to it. The covenant has several parts. At first, I want you to notice this, that it's established by God, with God. This is an interesting covenant because we know other covenants in the Bible are established between God and between human beings. This covenant is established by God, with God. And that's it. There is no, I will, so you shall. It's just, I will. And that has to start to percolate in our minds and to begin to permeate how we process. Notice that the stipulation about go out and fill the earth is said not as after this, this covenant is made, but prior to it. God says, that's your calling and your purpose. Here's the covenant I make. So the first thing I want us to notice is it's established by God and with God. The second thing I want you to notice then, and it's said twice to get it, get it to our, our minds, behold, I establish in verse 9, I establish my covenant with you. I want us to notice then this, 
that it is also established in its having an lasting effect. Look at where it says in verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. What we see here is God establishes this covenant with himself, and people get the benefit. Now, one of the ways you know he's establishing this with himself is this, and you see the graciousness of this covenant. Can animals accept the terms of this covenant? Can animals accept the terms? No, animals can't accept terms. So the fact that this covenant is established and made by God with human beings and animals is not based on their acceptance of it, but the fact of God's graciousness towards them. God is acting graciously towards Noah and his sons and the creation. The promise is given to human beings and to animals. Lastly, what I want you to see then in this is that God says, I will remember. Look at what he says there in verse 15. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, when you see this and when you begin to ponder this and you begin to wrestle through this, what I want you to notice is the idea that God says, I'm making a covenant, I'm establishing it with you, with all of these creatures, all these things, but there are no stipulations that need to be met by you. I'm taking it to myself. I am the one who has to carry out the conditions of this covenant. It's striking it's very different from Sinai. It's very different from the Garden of Eden. Where Adam was told, do not. What we see here then is something astounding. When God says, and this gives us a sign as to what's happening there, I will see it and remember. What is it God will see and remember? Well, we know that when the storm clouds come, that people from here on out are going to become afraid, right? I mean, Noah and his sons know that when, this, when these storm clouds begin to come up, they see the reality of God's judgment upon, coming upon the world. But God says it's right in the midst of those clouds forming and those, that thunder clouds coming that my sign of the covenant will appear. And he doesn't say, and you'll see it. He says, I'll see it. And I will remember now, for those of you that don't know this, in the Hebrew language, that bow, we see this beautiful rainbow and we think, wow, this beautiful, incredible sight. But what God was speaking about was an object of warfare, a bow. And if you notice how a bow forms in the sky, what's the bow part aiming at? The bow part isn't aiming at the earth. The bow part's aiming at heaven. Do you see what this passage is showing to Noah? You see why it exudes great confidence? Noah, you and the rest of humanity are going to constantly be plagued 
with devaluing life. Your call, your purpose is to go out and extol life. But you're going to struggle because you won't. And you don't. Not the way you were made to. But lest you become despairing and hopeless, I want you to know that when judgment finally finds its most sure and true object, it will not be you. It will be me. So as we conclude, I want you to think about this. When we get to a cross some 2,000 years ago, what we see in a very real way is the clouds of judgment and the promise of mercy seen in one place. That bow is clearly aimed at Jesus on the cross. All the wrath of judgment is poured out right there. All of it for the sins of His people poured out on that cross. And this morning, what I want you to walk out of here with, whether you know Jesus as your Savior or not, and if you don't, it's a great opportunity to come to know Him because what we see in this place is, we all know I was made for something better. Life doesn't make sense. And what we see is God setting things right at the cross. What we see is God pouring out wrath that has to be dealt with at the cross. What we see is this. God loves life so much that He was willing to give His only Son to save it. Do you see that? This passage points us to the reality that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him might have everlasting life. May we come and believe and live as God intended us to. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.